Welcome to a new episode of How I Became, the podcast where I talk with individuals to reveal the valuable lessons they've learned while navigating their way through life. At some point, me, you, any of us, we have to say, I'm done living this way. I don't know exactly what I have to do. I don't know what levers I have to pull or which path to go. But what I know is I'm done settling. There will be no more of the same. This is my life and I'm going to take control. Okay, welcome to another episode of How I Became. I am talking today with Kellen Flukeger. Kellen, we're going to start real simple. Let's give an introduction of yourself, your background, because you have an interesting story. And I like, before we get into the deeper into the conversation, I like our listeners to kind of get that, that story from you. Well, thanks. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate the opportunity and spectacular congratulations on pronouncing a very complicated name correctly. Um, so my story, uh, like it's very long and complicated. I filled up some books with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a book called Tightrope of Depression, My Journey from Darkness, Despair and Death to Light, Love and Life, chronicling 40 years of major depressive disorder. If I just said that, people might think I'm unsuccessful and just battling this terrible thing of depression. And the truth is, if I didn't say that at all, the other way I would say it is I had a 30-year career as an executive in the energy industry in the United States and Canada and some very high-ranking positions and blah, 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 including I testified before Congress in the U.S. and had a contract with the Queen of England. And so I could describe life in a couple of different ways. After that 30 years, now that you know the secret about having terrible depression behind it, then it won't surprise you to know that I went through different relationships and had all kinds of stuff, kind of like you make movies out of some dude that's all successful on this side and behind the scenes. It's like, holy crap. I was kind of that guy. Uh, In 2000, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was wondering, when did, was there a moment, let's let's go back to your youth, where there was some inclination there where that mental illness would be there, was, was part of you? Yeah. Uh, I was raised in a very strict uh, religious home with discipline that today would be felony child abuse, would be removed from the home, that sort of thing. The context of that was that I hated myself because I believed, I internalized the belief that I wasn't good enough and that I never would be. I would never get the approval of particularly my mom. My parents were married. My dad was there, but he wasn't um, the administrator of the discipline much. My, my mom was, and I, I feared her all of my life. And the funny part, it's not funny, but funny sort of, is part of the um, part of the dogma, I guess, was you can't talk to anyone. And if there's something wrong, just sort of suck it up. It's your fault. So I spent, uh, you ask about childhood. I remember 13, I was 13, uh, my first effort to escape my life uh, using drugs. And it wasn't about, um, you know, peer pressure or anything at school. It was me alone on the farm. I started sniffing gasoline from the tractors and I, we'd spend every summer on the farm at my, my, uh, uncle's place. And it was just to, to escape from the, what I viewed as the misery of life. So I began then 
feeling like I wasn't good enough and never would be. And that was despite the fact that I actually was blessed with a lot of brains and I could get really good grades if I wanted to, et cetera, et cetera. But I internalized that belief that I sucked. And no matter how much success I had on the outside through those decades, trying to get that big stamp of approval on my forehead, you're okay. I, I did not like myself and did not believe that I was okay. So yeah, early teens. Hmm. What was the moment that you realized that you had to turn things around for yourself? Where was that inflection point? August of 2007, when I was 53. So 40 years, I never talked to a soul and burned through multiple relationships and all kinds of stuff. 10 kids, some of which still won't talk to me. And I'm working on those things now, but now without the guilt and the blame, which always gets in the way. And August of 2007, I had uh, a divine intervention and I can't describe it any other way. A couple of several events, but two major ones happened uh, in a, in a, in a dramatic fashion that simply completely made me walk away from the contracts and all the money that I had and quit everything and just start going in a new direction. So, yeah, it was a divine, I, there's enough of this. There's another road for you. It's an invitation. Obviously you're never forced to do anything, but it was a, a dramatic invitation to change directions. And what was the direction that you chose? Because I've seen the books, the videos and everything, but just for the listener's sake, what was that decision that you chose? Well, I had just finished 30 years as a, in the energy industry, as I mentioned, and I knew that if I kept doing that, I would be dead. I'd already attempted suicide a couple of times and the dramatic intervention was uh, 17 hours out of body and I suffered watching a sort of panorama of all the mistakes that I'd made before my life, not in a negative accusatory way, but just sort of a review. And then at the end of that time, I was unconscious for that long. I was a voice that said, it is enough. I woke up and that's when I realized it was 17 and a half hours later. And I realized I'd just been invited to change directions. So I walked away from a couple of weeks later, I quit all the jobs that I had, I contracts, I was a contractor, I quit all of them just walked away and said, I got to do something different. I don't know what it is yet, but this is what we do. Um, so that was what happened. And I built the choice to go into coaching, which I am now over the next year or two with the help of my now wife. She was the other part of that divine intervention. And that's another interesting story that can't be real, but was. In the position that I had, I used to get lots of free stuff because I made decisions that were worth billions of dollars. And so people would give me free tickets to this and bottles of you know wine, expensive this, that, and the other. Not bribes, but right up to, yeah, pretty expensive stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> one of the things I got was a pair of tickets to uh, an, a classical concert. Now, if you know classical music, then you know who Yo-Yo Ma is, a cellist. If you don't, you don't. But anyway, he's the greatest cellist in the world. I was single again for the third time, so I always gave the other ticket to whatever it was away. And I went to the groups that I managed and I said, who likes classical music? And a lady in one of the groups that I managed said, well, I do. And I said to her, well, have I ever given you anything? No. Okay, cool. Here, we'll see you there. And that was it. So we met at the concert and this was two weeks exactly after this other thing had happened. During the concert, which was electrifying and spectacular, 
uh, I had this overwhelming feeling that reminded me of what I'd felt two weeks earlier. And in my head, voice said, you need to marry this woman. And I said, you are insane because I'd failed so much already. And I said, we're not doing this. Later that night, the tickets were backstage passes, of course. So we're backstage meeting people and all that jazz. And the feeling came back and said in my head, and you need to tell her tonight. <clears throat> that was the most terrifying thing in the world because she worked for me. I could have been accused of all kinds of stuff, but I did it anyway. Uh, it went about like you would have expected. She was surprised and like, what are you, are you out of your mind sort of thing? But in the next two weeks, she had her own set of experiences. She resigned her position. I left mine and we embarked on a journey 14 and a half years ago. So that was the other half of the invitation to completely change my life was the blessing of a companion who knew what was wrong because there were rumors in the office, et cetera, et cetera, but decided for her own reasons that this was the right thing to do. Interesting. What is the biggest difference you see in yourself in this marriage that is that is no that was present in the previous three? Was what what would you say is the biggest um, change? I I knew how to to love somebody. I I lived with conditional love all the time growing up. I didn't know how to be a partner. I attracted you know, people that had their own sets of problems. Uh, one woman was, you know, had been raised by an alcoholic stepfather. Another woman had, her mom had committed suicide when she was 12. And all those things cause struggles in people. But I, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how to support. I didn't know how to help. I was busy being broken and not doing anything about that either. So I'm sure I had no idea how to be a partner. I'm sure I had no idea. I knew how to do one thing and that was make money. So I went and did that and was probably a disaster of a partner. In this case, number one, we'd been brought together in this incredible fashion. We were both committed and I'd literally walked away from everything I'd known. So instead of more of the same, I'm like, okay, what now? And so it's openness. It was a commitment to try to be a completely different person with radical change. And a huge part of it was that divine action that brought her into my life. She literally an angel. She's like, I'm doing this and we're going to make this work. And so while I went to, she's found different counselors for me to talk to. And so in my early fifties, for the first time in my life, I talked to somebody and, you know, we spent the first three or four years figuring it out because both of us had a commitment knowing where we were starting. Hmm. So is the, uh, is Coming to the understanding and the realization of knowing how broke you are and then actually doing something about it, because I think we all realize most of us in some ways are broken, but having the courage to do something about it, what, what would you say you had a divine intervention, but what if you don't have a divine intervention, how do you find the courage to actually do something about your brokenness? You know, that's a fabulous question. I love answering it. So let's talk about that. Even though it was an intervention, it was still an invitation. I had to accept it. I had to walk away from everything I was doing and into the unknown. And there wasn't a red carpet or magic path laid out. But the key answer to your question is at some point, 
me, you, any of us, we have to say, I'm done living this way. I don't know exactly what I have to do. I don't know what levers I have to pull or which path to go. But what I know is I'm done settling. There will be no more of the same. This is my life and I'm going to take control. When you do that, those that are used to you behaving in this other fashion give you all kinds of pushback. They don't want you to change because you fit neatly into a narrative in your brokenness. So the, the key piece is this, and there's two parts to it. One, you have absolute control over your own life. You have it. You may not have exercised it till now. You may have given it away like I did to the myth that I needed somebody's approval and all this other stuff, but you have control. The second piece of this is I don't care where you've been. I don't care how many relationships you have or haven't had. I don't care how many rehabs you've been through or anything, no matter what has come before. It is never too late to matter and to create a big impact. So those two truths, even if the road there is messy, and mine certainly was, those two things are the things that I think are important. You said something interesting, and I think this leads into the gist of the conversation that I wanted to have with you, because it sounds like all of this comes down to making some type of choice. And yep. you have a I was listening to the podcast and you have one episode is the pillar of choice. And I want to go into that because. All of these things that you describe this entire life, for the most part, it's all been a choice to ignore the brokenness, to focus in on certain areas to do certain things, to choose certain people. It's all choices. It's all choices that we're making. So I want to talk about this series that you're doing about choice and that pillar of choice. Let's frame it like this. Let's start with the foundation. Where are you, where are you starting and where are you trying to get to to help people understand choice? Well, the way I described it, the pillar of choice is one of seven pillars building a palace of power. And that's where this big, long 65-part episode goes. But choice has seven parts. And the first one is the fundamental idea that we so often ignore. And that is simply that choice exists. So many people so often say, I had no choice, or they allow themselves to be pushed into a corner, or they believe for whatever reason, they have no choice. And if you say, well, you really do, well, no, then this, and they list all these possible consequences. Well, they may or may not be true, the consequences, but the fact is you still have a choice. And even considering the choice you have, you may do whatever you were going to do anyway. But the thing that's key is to acknowledge and own the choice. I have a choice. I choose to do this. That makes it my choice, not imposed by external circumstances, not because the economy's bad or COVID hit or your partner does or doesn't believe this, that, and the other. You own the choices you make. So that's the first foundation piece is to understand that choice exists in every single moment. And waking up to that and owning the choices you make is the first piece. 
How do you get people out of their head? Because I can, I can relate to the idea that I have mortgages, I have bills, I have responsibility. Someone asks, do you want to do this? I can't. I, that's not up to me. I don't have a choice. I have to do this because as you're saying, I'm not thinking of, I'm choosing to avoid certain consequences. My mentality is I don't have a choice here because society and my own livelihood depends on these certain actions. So it doesn't feel like a choice. How do you overcome the idea that a lot of these things we do, we do with the re in the mindset that we don't feel like we have that. How do we, what are the steps to over, overcoming that and saying, yes, I am choosing to pay rent. I'm choosing to pay the mortgage. I'm choosing all of these things and I'm empowering myself to do this because I'm seeking certain um, things. How do we, how do you make that switch? First, you have to decide you want to. This goes back to the levers of, of changing your life. You're free. I'm free to live in the idea that I don't have a choice. And a word that I use a lot in that is the word hafta. H-A-F-T-A. I have to pay the mortgage. I have to do this. I have to go to work. I have to, have to, have to. So what if, just to start with, stop using the contraction. Because hafta implies obligation and resistance or resentment. When we say that in that way, I hafta, it almost always implies there's something else you'd rather do. And there's some amount of resistance or resentment there. So change it to saying, hmm, I have a mortgage to pay. I have that. I own it. I signed it. I want it. I have this. And then it becomes a sense of ownership instead of a resentful obligation. So if you have rent to pay, and I do too, then I, I own that. I love it. I have rent to pay. And doing that allows me to have this beautiful house. It allows me to sit in front of a computer and talk to you. It allows me to find clients that are in Europe. So yes, I have a mortgage to pay and I love it. So it is, it is a, an intentional process to own the continuing choice. This is particularly obvious in relationships where Somebody's been together for a while and they're with their wife or their husband. And then it's like, yeah, you know, I have to do this because the, the husband, the old man, this, the old lady, that. And, and that's the kind of the feeling. If you stopped and said, you know what? I choose again to honor the relationship and commitment that I made. I choose that because that's what I have to do. Instead of have to, the feeling of obligation and resentment is the killer of the feeling of choice. Choosing to reaffirm a choice you made once before to sign a mortgage or get married or be with somebody or have a kid or do whatever it is, is the first piece. Yes, you still have it and it's still there. And if you choose not to, then you may have to find another place to live. And then you say, I have to find another place to live because I chose to do this. Okay. And so the idea is own the choices, choose to love them. They provide you with whatever benefits because you're still wanting those benefits. Okay, choose to love the choice that gives you those benefits. 
Okay. I like that. And you, you, you said there were seven pillars. I know that another one was that choice persists. And I, I dug that because it's one of those things, whether or not you think the choice is there, is there. It, you may not even recognize it, acknowledge it, but it's there. Talk to me about that because I, I think that's maybe something that's hidden from people that they may not realize is that, you know, there's this undercurrent of choice that's running through your life and you're just not tapping into it. I love that. And it means you've listened. Yeah, that was the second stone in the pillar of choice. So each of the seven pillars has seven stones. Pillar of choice has seven parts. Part one is choice exists. Part two is choice persists. That means what we were just talking about, which I make a choice to sign a rental agreement or a mortgage. That then sometimes people say, okay, now I have no choice. Now I'm forced here because I made that choice back there. Choice persists is the recognition that choice continues. You always have a choice right here, right now. This month, I choose again to pay the rent because I have rent to pay. I love it. And that choice persists every single time. And the minute we take it out of the realization that it continues, and we continue to embrace and own that choice, then it moves into a rock in the backpack that we have to carry. And life becomes a series of groans with the weight of these accumulated things instead of pulling them all out and examining them and repolishing them and living and leaning into the choices you made. And if you can't do that, if you pull out some rock and you go, oh, that was the stupidest thing I ever did, well, then make a new choice. Yes, it will bring consequences. So your choice is keep the rock in the backpack, hate it, hate your life, or pull it out, embrace it, or make a new choice. You know, I'm really going to use that with my wife when I start talking about my wine budget is that, yes, there are a lot of things we can do, babe, but I choose the Sangiovese. So <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. That will help me out quite a bit, I think. Okay. We'll see. We'll see about that. But you mentioned something, and I want to—I don't want to gloss over this. A 65-part series. I—I—I I, I like to know how you came up with a topic, and then as you're going through it, you said it's going to take 65 parts to do this i what's what's coming i i guess i'd like to know what's coming down the pipe in this series but before then i'd like to get how did you get to 65 parts and was that whittled down from even a larger uh, selection of options so it's a random number. It isn't random. I'll tell you how I got there. The key that most people, one of the big things people struggle with that I see all the time as, as a coach is people feel powerless. 
They don't feel like they have the power to change their lives, to make more money, to do something different, to upgrade their relationship, upgrade the relationship with God, to upgrade their spirituality, to upgrade the relationship with their kids. They feel like they're powerless. And in fact, that lack of power is one of the things I think gives rise to so much discord in our society. You see someone go into the help desk at Walmart and they're screaming at the clerk because for that moment, they think they have power to do something crazy. And that comes from a sense that we all allow in our lives that we're powerless. So what happened is I thought, what are the keys to power? What can I do to help people understand how power, personal power, their own power, I'm not talking about power to force somebody else to do anything, your own power, how is that created? And that was the genesis. What are the keys to power? And so then I went on this fantasy journey and I imagined this palace in the sky. And then I thought of what are the pillars holding up this palace? You know, this sort of gray or blue and purple and green shimmery, kind of like the Northern Lights palace in the sky. What are the pillars holding up the palace of power? And so I picked uh, seven things and I thought about it for quite some time. And I built a framework that said, here are the keys to power, the, the big ones. One was the pillar of choice. One was the pillar of language. One is the pillar of truth. One is the pillar of um, integrity. One is the pillar of presence. And that's not a gift, but presence. <laughs> one is the pillar of service, and one is the pillar of love. Those seven things in my framework are the keys to creating personal power. So then I thought, all right, if there are seven, I, how you know, there's lots of facets, like a diamond has lots of facets. So each one of these pillars is going to have seven stones in it. So then I took each idea apart and like in choice is choice exists, choice persists. The third stone is choice resists. And that talk, yes, those rhyme and it was on purpose, but it talks about the, the resistance we feel to choice and there's four more. So I took each pillar apart to seven pieces. Then I said, okay, each pillar needs an intro and a wrap up. So then that's nine episodes for each pillar, nine times seven is 63. And then the whole thing about building a palace of power needs an intro and a conclusion. So that's 64, 65. So that's how we got to 65 episodes. And I decided to do that because the idea and the need for us to feel like we have personal power to create whatever we want, in my mind, is so critical. You know what? When you break it down like that, 65 does not sound insane to me now because now it sounds like Amazon Prime Bosch season, right? It's like there's season one, there's going to be eight episodes in season one, then there's season two, and then three, and, and finally the seven, and each episode have eight. But the thing about Bosch is that what Michael Connolly does is that that narrative, there's this narrative that goes the, through the entire series. It's never, it's never always in focus. It kind of comes and goes. But that single narrative is always 
in every episode of Bosch and, and definitely in every season. And that's what kind of strings it along. And that's why I love it and why I read almost all of his books. But now it makes sense. Okay. Because I was thinking 65 part series. I have no idea how you're going to do it, but breaking it down, choice, language, truth, integrity, presence, service, and love. And all of those things make absolute sense. Um, presence. Let's talk about presence because I think I like, maybe we can get a slight preview of presence because it's one of the things, especially when you talk about relationship and I have to admit, I've struggled with this at times in my own relationships of not being present in that moment. And and sometimes spending so much time in my head that the world as is moving, I'm missing the world because I'm in my head so much. So I can see how that can be a problem. Um, and so I'd like to get a preview on that. Just, you know, I know you got episodes coming and but if you haven't researched, that's fine. But I'd like oh, to get a little they're all here ready. Here's oh, the whole wow. with all 65. Okay. Okay. So, um, so I'll talk, to, I'll tell you presence. There's seven stones in that one, like all of them. And then there'll be an intro and outro. So each pillar has nine pieces intro, seven construction stones, and then an outro or wrap up episode, right? So there's nine. The presence part, we're going to talk about the presence inside, which is your own awareness of what's really going on inside. In that episode, we'll talk a little bit about meditation and learning to be still and notice what's going on inside of you. The second one is presence is outside, which is the presence that we project. When we show up for people, how are we showing up in the world? The third part is presence is receiving, which is our presence can be off-putting or it can be open so that it we can receive the energy of other people. And what, how we choose to show up allows good interchange and flow or it rejects it. Then the next piece is the inter inverse of that. Presence is sending, which is what is what are the messages? And I'm going to give the episodes different titles in this, like I did in some of the other things that sound more whatever. But the principle is that the presence or energy that we have sends out signals about who we are far more powerful than our words. Uh, stone number five is presence is expansive. And that's going to talk about the, the true ability of our energy to go far beyond our immediate surroundings. Like the, the presence that you can cultivate can have an influence at great distance, uh, both energetically and through the technology that we have. And the idea there is to be aware of the presence that you're cultivating around you, like in your work and in all the places that you show up, what kind of presence are you cultivating? Uh, the sixth one is president presence is dominant. And what I mean by that is it can be overpowering. One of the lessons that I learned is I carried an enormous energetic presence. I would come into a room and I didn't say anything. I carried such energy that I, I couldn't not be noticed. I had to understand that and learn to turn it down. I had a, I showed up, this is going to sound really funny one, but I had a meeting with the, with the chairman and the CEO of a company were there and they'd hired me as their secret behind the scenes consultant to help them with big decisions. 
we were meeting with a bunch of New York bankers from Lehman Brothers and some other high-end things. We were talking about multi-hundred million dollar projects that were being built. The CEO stopped the meeting and I hadn't said a word. I was looking down at the desk. My job wasn't to say anything, but to listen to everything and then tell CEO and the chairman what to do later, but just to be there to hear everything. I was only listening. She stopped the meeting and I looked up because she said, just a minute. So I looked up and she turned to the bankers and she said, don't worry. It's okay. That's just how he listens. And so the presence energetic presence that I had in my intensity of listening was so loud that it was making people uncomfortable. So that talks about the, be aware of and capable of managing the presence that you have. And stone number seven is presence is humble, which talks about the need for humility and fitting in and understanding the real benefit you can give to people, even whether you have powerful presence or not, but to have as an integral element, true and honest uh, humility. So those are the seven stones of the presence pillar. Mm, uh, I like that. Let's get into the the practical of getting this stuff implemented in people's lives so they can actually start moving. How do you now you said you're a coach? How do you go about getting a person to actually get there to let's start with the the idea of the choice right what's your technique for getting a person to accept the fact that what they're doing is not accepting the idea of choice and executing on it how do you get them to actually start walking in this stuff okay so the first thing is i don't make anybody do anything what I do is reflect. So when someone comes to a coach, they want to change something. They might want to build a business. They might want to launch a new product. They might want to get rid of a bad habit. They might want to fix a relationship. They might want to get out of a relationship. They just want help doing something that to them feels daunting, right? Scary, hard. They don't know how to do it or whatever. So the first element is to just talk about it a lot, take it apart. And I let them talk listening to the language they use in describing the problem, describing what they've tried, describing why it's hard, tells me a lot, like a ton, about their view of life, like what causes what and everything else. So then I will reflect back to them often, well, you're, you're explaining it this way, what about this? And we'll talk about other ideas and I'll just call them out when they're abdicating choice. Like, well, what would happen if you did this other thing? You know, whatever the choice might be, what would happen if you did this? And they can, you know, consider it and we'll talk about it. The key element for anyone helping them is they have to want something like I can't want the new outcome more than they do. Um, you know, I can't cause them to desire a better life. They have to want it and they're out looking for help. What they want is you know, some hold, a little bit of handholding, some accountability, some ideas, some fresh perspective and a place where they can be open and vulnerable to talk about what they're scared of, what's hard, why it's hard with no judgment. Let's just talk about it and see what other options are available to you. And then they make commitments. So at the end of every coaching session, I'll say, OK, you've discussed this and this and this. What is your commitment for this week? So that next week when we talk, you can tell me what happened. You're going to try what? And so we'll go over some aspect of the situation and I'll make some commitments. 
for to themselves, not to me. I mean, this is about them changing them. And I'm the catalyst to make it happen. Do you find most people who seek out coaching are that they do it in a way that at that particular time they're ready to move? Or <laughs> is it sometimes that someone comes to you and then when you show them the reality of what they're of what they're up against, they shrink and maybe not really ready for it? All the time. I would say that 90 to 95 percent of people who want a different outcome in some area of their lives are actually not ready to be coached. They're not willing to do the work. They, what they really want is to go by the magic sauce they sell on aisle 13 and a half. And that's the sauce that you can pour on today's life and get a different outcome. You know, there's no such sauce. There's no aisle 13 and a half. It's like there's no platform nine and three quarters in the Harry Potter world. It, it's some magical thing and you can't you can't have that. So you either choose to settle. And we talk about that. I'll say, well, you're, you're free to go settle for what you've got. You know what that's like. You've been living it. It was uncomfortable enough for you to have this conversation with me about it. We've explored different things you could do, even tiny first little steps. If looking at that, you say, I don't have the courage to do that, even with help. You know, you're free to do that. I'll be here when you get the courage to take some small steps and let's get moving. If you don't want to do that right now, I'm not going to pretend to try to make you buy coaching or buy help or do anything when you're not ready. You, you got to want this. You got to bleed it. And even if we take tiny baby steps, that's fine. But you got to be ready to do this because if we have coaching calls, sessions week after week where you tell me all the excuses you got, then I'll tell you, you need therapy and you're wasting your money. Hmm. Okay. Personality types. Is there a personality type that, and I'm going to talk about, they're the, like the high achievers, right? And a lot of times, just, just like in your case, you know, successful, high achieving, type A types, big personalities, big presence, and they go for coaching. How does someone like that show up? for coaching because it seems like they're used to being one way and now someone is stripping them down to their essence. How do they respond to that? Well, that depends. It's kind of like when I first started seeing counselors after my decades of depression, I went into the first counselors and I told them everything that I thought was wrong, told them all the insights I'd already discovered and did some self-therapy and said, and this is what I think. And it was out of a fear and the idea that I was supposed to already have the answers from that type A place. So one of the first conversations, actually, before we even have an agreement and, you know, we they sign up, so to speak, we talk about who is committing to what. Like I will explain to them the commitments of the coach and I will tell them what I will ask them what they're willing to do. And if what they say is not what you just described, willingness to be vulnerable, try new things and explore things in truth, then I explore that with them. And if we can't get to a place where they express an agreement, yeah, I agree to do that. It might be hard, painful. You'll have to call me a few times. If we can't get to that 
conversation, then the answer is you're not really ready for coaching because you want to be right all the time. And if you were, you wouldn't be here. So, I mean, I'm okay. You can, your choice is to stay right where you are and you're, you're perfectly free to do that. And I love you anyway, but if you really want to make some changes, then we got to be able to talk frankly, and you got to be committed to trying new stuff. Otherwise you're wasting your dough in my time. Okay. How does this work with a business? So there are the personal coaching and then there's consulting for business how does it work when there are these employees, financial obligations, markets, customers? How does that work when you're dealing with a CEO and helping him make decisions on a company that and there are these financial ramifications for a lot more stakeholders? Well, we have to talk about all those things. Sometimes I'll work with an entire executive team and sometimes just with the leader. It depends on their objective. If they've got company culture problems, then we might talk to executive team and just explore, again, in a non-judgmental thing. Okay, how did you get here? What happened? What are the events that have happened? Now, if I'm just working with the, the leader of the company, then I expect and draw out, okay, if you change this, what will happen? You know, what is it that you're worried about? Do, are you losing market share? Are you getting ready to launch a new product? Are you, do you have high turnover? Like what is happening that is the genesis for us even having this conversation? What is not the way you want? Uh, and it, it may be where we're just trying to grow. We're just trying to double our revenue. I had a guy that owned a pharmacy. You know, his goal was I just need to double my revenue. Okay, cool. So we dove into all the ways that that could happen. And then some changes had to happen and he was able to do that. So it just, we actually talk about that. Sometimes we dive right into financials and stuff, but most of the time that isn't really required. I trust and ask for their assessment of what different things will do because they're going to be in a much better position to say what they believe the consequences of some small or large change will be. And then we'll talk about, does it need to be incremental? How will we start it? How do we phase it in? How do we get buy-in of your senior management team or your frontline people? Like what is a process to increase dramatically the likelihood of success of some change you're trying to do. What would you say to the person that is sitting and listening and they are on the fence about changing the direction in their lives because they see that they need to change, that something has to change, but the fear is more crippling than the motivation to move. What would you say to that individual that says, you're gonna have to make the choice right now? Well, there's two things. One, I would have a great deal of empathy and love because I lived for a long time paralyzed by fear of change. I lived for a long time knowing that my life was broken and that things were not good and not feeling like I knew how to do something about it and being afraid to. So first of all, the first thing I want to do with a potential client, they're not even a client yet, is make them feel safe. Like this is can be very difficult work. So you're in a safe place to decide to do or not to do or how much to do. Your fear is normal 
Uh, fear of the unknown is enormous. Fear of not controlling the outcome. You know, all of those kinds of things are real. They're powerful. And the, the real issue is let's just talk about what happens if you don't change. And we talk that down the road a ways in a week or a month or a year or two. If you make no changes, what do you think will happen? And I let them tell me what they think will happen. And then the easy question is, are you willing to live with that? Are you willing a year from now or two or five to be where you just described? And if the answer is, well, that's not so bad, then I'll say, okay. So what you're telling me is your vision of two or three or five years from now isn't that bad. All right. Now tell me what you think could happen if you make some changes, you know, engage diligently in these change processes and they'll describe it. And if when they get done with those descriptions, if the difference between the two isn't motivating for them, if they say, I'm not really willing to spend money and to do some work to get that new difference, then OK, what you're telling me is the straight line outcome is not that bad and the new outcome is not that much better that it's worth a bunch of work. I might challenge them if I think they're BSing themselves about either of those legs. I'll challenge and I'll say, do you really think, and I probably laugh when I say, are you really telling me you think in a year this or that? You know, and then it, it depends. And if they're not really willing to tell the truth, that already says they're not willing to do the work because we have to create and that's my first goal is to create a place of safety. Like, I can't help you if you're not willing to tell me the truth. There's no judgment here. I'm not going to judge you either way. And I'm certainly not going to tell anybody anything. <laughs> Let's just talk and see what you really think and what you're afraid of and what you wish and what you hope and what are your dreams and aspirations and what are your nightmares? What's keeping you awake at night? And let's go down those roads a ways. Now, here you've got this clear two legs. Which one do you want to live in? And then how bad? Like, I'm not going to pretend it isn't work to go to this good leg. I'd be silly. I'd be lying. Do you want it bad enough to do this? I appreciate that. How can people get in contact with you? And you have a podcast. I'd like you to kind of promote the podcast because the 65, um, 65 show series I'm excited about it because, well, now that I actually have the outline for me, it's like I can I know what was coming. So, and if you listen to this show, you also know what's coming. So we can we can start anticipating these um, these stones. It's like um, Thanos and the Infinity Stones, just the collecting everything together. So, yeah. so let's uh, how how do people get in contact with you, and how do people listen to? Uh, to the show. The, the name of the podcast is Your Ultimate Life. And I define that as a life of purpose, prosperity, and joy you create by serving with your divine gifts. It's a 15 minute daily podcast on all the regular Amazon, Deezer, Spotify, uh, Apple, you know, all the regular podcast places. I uh, just put your Ultimate Life, and then my name, Kellen Flukiger, and you'll see it. I just recorded episode 500 and 506 or 504 this morning. So we're at 500 episodes um, and it'll go on 
forever, as far as I'm concerned. It, it's fun and I really enjoy doing it because I'm committed to helping you, whoever you are, create your ultimate life. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm really easy to find. There are two Kellen Flukigers in the world. The other one is my son, two out of eight billion. Uh, so I'm available. You can connect with me on Facebook, send me a message. I have my website, which is my name, www.kellenflukiger.com. And it was really easy to get that. There was no competition. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So that, and I have, you know, profiles on Instagram and YouTube and other stuff. So if you, if you want to connect with me, my email is uh, Coach Kellen Flukiger, and you do have to look in the show notes to spell the name right. Coach Kellen Flukiger at gmail.com. You know, send me an email. I'm, I'm actually really easy to find. Yeah. All of that will be in the show notes. We'll get all the links up to the podcast and to the website and email address and everything. So we'll have all of that in the show notes. Well, Kellen, I appreciate it. This has been fascinating. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, I wasn't sure I had three different ideas when I hit record where I was going to go with this, but I think sticking with the idea of talking about that choice was a good one. So I appreciate this conversation. Well, th thank you. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks for having me. And my deepest desire is that those who listen to your show feel uplifted, empowered, and connect with the idea that no matter what's happened before, you can always create a better future one day at a time. The future is blank. It is not an extension of the past unless you choose to let it be that. Thanks for listening to the show. Please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. That helps get rankings and make it easier for people to find the show. Check out the links in the notes. Also, leave a comment. Let us know what part of the show you enjoyed and what was most impactful. Share this episode with your network and help us spread the word about the podcast. As always, you can contact me at thequickstarcreative at gmail.com. Thanks for your time and make it a great day.